Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. The whole building of that persona of the family man who believes in God and supports the Sharks, for quite a few of those swing voters, that's locked in. And so they haven't seen how the magician does his trick. So if you're just watching politics out of the corner of your eye, you can see mistakes, but you're actually starting, believe it or not, with a sympathetic character. Hello, lovely people of pods. Today we're doing something a little bit different on the show. Every time we do a Guardian Essential poll, Peter Lewis and I do some in-depth analysis of what it all means, and we do this on a webinar that is organised by the Australia Institute, which is a progressive think tank. This fortnightly chat is always a hoot. We weave through the numbers in the poll, we assess prevailing political dynamics, and every now and again we crack a joke. Uh, This particular conversation was recorded on Tuesday of this week and we discussed the most recent numbers and all the political developments in the parliamentary sitting week, including the resolution of religious discrimination and the statement of acknowledgement that Parliament delivered this week after the Jenkins review. This conversation is moderated by Ebony Bennett, who is the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute, and she's about to ask me the first question. So last fortnight, we covered the fact that summer had not exactly gone as the Prime Minister Scott Morrison had hoped it would, and that rather than a hot back summer of freedom, people were unable to find rat tests. There were massive lines for PCR tests. Supermarket shelves were empty and many other problems. And now Parliament is back today. And the Prime Minister wants the focus to be on the future. Uh, He wants us to be talking about the fact that they're aiming for unemployment numbers with a three in front of it. Uh, He talked at the National Press Club about up to $800 in bonus payments for aged care workers. Uh, And Catherine Murphy herself asked the Prime Minister about the deaths and outbreaks in aged care this year. And I do want to come back to that in just a second. But Catherine, the Prime Minister was confronted with not one but two separate colleagues calling him a liar, one anonymously who also um, to boot thought he was a complete psycho and the other is his own Deputy PM, Barnaby Joyce, who's already apologised for calling him a a hypocrite and a liar. Um, One of my favourite shows, Justified, there's a character on there that says, put it like this, if you're in first grade and you beat a kid every week, you'd start to think of him as a biter. Is that how we're starting to think of the Prime Minister, Catherine? 
I, I don't look, Ebony, you know I love you, but I do not want to think of the Prime Minister as a biter in any <laughs> shape or form. I think that's several bridges too far. So let's step back from the abyss there. But look, your point is absolutely sound. Your point is that it's been, uh, you know, a very difficult summer for the government. And then the sort of return to normal parliamentary and political business after the summer has been equally fraught for all of the reasons that you've outlined, including the free character uh, assessments of the Prime Minister by the the Deputy Prime Minister and an unnamed Cabinet Minister. And also we sort of, as we're joining you all today, um, obviously Parliament is back, MPs are back, marshalling down on the front forecourt is a, a very large protest of people who are opposed to vaccination mandates, there is this sort of sense of the government being encircled at this point in time, that it's difficult to land a clean line or a clean thought about anything. As Eb said a minute ago, the Prime Minister's current objective is to pivot away from the pandemic, which is fraught now for the government to campaign on and sort of reorient the debate in the economy and and also uh, set up this election debate that you know we we are the safe alternative, and if you change the government, that means risk. But the government is sort of having trouble, just kind of steadying, pivoting, and sort of shaping the conversation in a new direction. Yeah. Anyway, it's a fascinating set of uh, conundrums that the prime minister faces just at the moment. It sure is. And Pete, I wanted to come to the polling quite shortly, but to kick us off, um, I guess you guys have made a real point with the Guardian Essential poll not to follow the uh, horse race as closely, only publishing kind of um, quarterly where all that is up to, but that's set to change because we're much closer to the election. Do you want to just take us through before we dive into the figures, that shift? Yeah, so maybe the horse race has now begun. Um, Seriously, look, we took stock after the last election and the performance of all the polls and maybe providing a bit of a false load star, particularly for the progressive side of politics, that Labor was ahead and going to win because it was 52-48 or 51-49. When we look back over the way that we portrayed figures through the course of the last political cycle, we recognised that those numbers were never accurate, not because our waiting was out, but because there's 8 to 10% of the population that when you ask them, say, I don't know, even though they're the ones that actually have to vote at the end of the day. So we made the decision, talking with Catherine and Lenore about a way to do it better, Of we invented what we like to call 2PP+. And the plus is the undecided because our insight was what we'd done by taking them out of the sample was we were actually disenfranchising the disengaged. So to put them back in the picture changes the way you look at it. And we'll go to our polling numbers in a sec. Um, The other thing we said was that we would only release sets of data in three-month blocks. So rather than looking, oh, it's moved 1%, what does that mean, Simon Benson? We actually sort of sit there and um, have a look at the movement because there is there is a margin of error. There is movement of 2 to 3%, which is um, the static in any poll. So as you'll see today, our poll's a little bit different to where news polls been running, but that's not a bad thing. That just shows the numbers are noisy. Um, we, we, if we want to go through, we will. But I guess, I guess to, to round off that conversation, so we are going to continue to report on that 
8% middle, the undecided and what that means to 2PP because yep. it gives us a better view of what's happening. And secondly, um, we are now going to release it every fortnight, but Murph and I are determined that that won't be the primary narrative. We are not going to be t- fixating about 1% or 2% movements week on week. We are still going to focus on the bigger contextual questions, and I guess that's the final point of this change in the, our approach to polling. It's allowed us, because we've had the horse race out of the front of our view, we've focused on other indicators like handling of COVID, which are much more, you know, it it is a real measure of something happening now rather than a hypothetical intention to act in a particular way in a future whose timeline is yet to be determined. Yeah. That all said, these are our numbers. Um, What we have got is a pretty close race, Um, 47 2PP plus to Labor, 46 2PP plus to the Coalition, 8% undecided. So rather than saying Labor's ahead, we're in the home straight and they're pretty close and the undecided voters are going to determine the election, much as they always do. Um, Now, if we'd put out this a week ago or the, the previous cycle, Labor was a little bit further ahead, but again, within the margin of error. Um, so I don't know if you want to go to the next few slides and you can sort of break it up a bit, but, you know, it's easy to fall into seeing a poll like the news poll 5644 was it and say all over Red Rover. This says not there is still a contest here and incumbency is incredibly valuable. Um, so this is the same slide on a different thing with the time frame. So you can see um, a week ago we would have said 5043 um with seven percent don't know and you know we would have been saying oh we're a bit like news poll but you know that's the movement men are neck and neck yeah a little bit ahead what is there anything that you would comment on in in that one pete that stuck out to you well just the narrowing on all of it now so you would look at that and go, oh, that means the coalition's been doing better in the last two weeks. And then you look at the real world and you go, uh-uh, that's not what's going on. So the, the only point at which these numbers have a degree of resonance is then if you go to the performance of the handling of COVID, which is one more down the line, which actually says, and I think this is probably more the point, and this is this is probably the takeout for the audience today who are very engaged in politics and wants to know who was the phantom texter. Um, most people are living their life through their interaction with um, the coronavirus, um, and there has been an uptick of about 5% in people saying the government's been doing either a very good or a quite good job in the last fortnight. To me, that says that the log jams on rats and the log jams on boosters are beginning to clear. So the punter that isn't involved in politics, the heat, it's not out of the government's handling, but it's a little bit better than it was. Catherine, what's your observation here of the latest results? Uh, yeah, well, look, as Pete has said, our data is is different uh, to where News Poll and I think the Morgan survey are at the present time. I think uh, we consistently over the last 12 months, uh, even though we haven't been highlighting the, the dreaded horse race, our numbers have been slightly more favourable to the coalition 
than some of the other surveys. Uh, in terms of, you know, without kind of stubbing our toe on these margin of error movements, which is half the problem, as Pete said, I mean, I think the value of having a bunch of other questions is interpretation, that we do see that uptick in, uh, well, look, if we step back over the summer, obviously people's view of the government's handling of the pandemic, both federal and their state government, deteriorated over the Omicron summer. That shouldn't surprise anybody. You know, (laughs) we all had Christmas breaks disturbed in different ways by the upsurge in cases and, you know, serious infections and tragically deaths. We all know the context. So, uh, you know, government sort of went on a slide basically over December and, and January as Pete says, with sort of some of the some of the bottlenecks that were really making people very frustrated, which is like the absence of sort of timely testing, not being able to get a booster, book in for a booster for several weeks, whatever your sort of uh, crunch point was, some of those things are starting to move through the system. So, you know, if we step back and think about what MPs are telling me on both sides, uh, government MPs, are of the view that they've had a kicking over the summer, an absolute kicking over the summer from the voters, but that the backlash is soft. You, you get that consistently, not sort of withstanding the, the craziness of the last, you know, whether or not uh, the Prime Minister is or isn't a psycho or a horrible, horrible person, or whether he is or is not uh, a hypocrite and a liar or whatever the character assessments say, it's most people you know, find that annoying. It's, it's noise and it distracts them from uh, the, the issues that are immediately before them, which is, uh, am I going to stay alive and am I going to have a job? And anyway, government MPs think that the kicking is soft. I mean, no one's triumphant. Everybody I've spoken to in the government thinks if an election was held today, they would lose it. But there is this feeling that the backlash is soft and I, I have said in this forum more than once, and I've written more than once since my return to work over the summer, this is a very difficult election for Labor to win. If this is a standard election cycle where there's not massive movement either way, uh, where people are sort of a bit near rather than definitive, this is a really difficult election for Labor to win because a lot has got to go right for the Labor Party in quite different parts of the country. It's certainly not impossible, but uh, I would rather be the coalition than Labor at this point in time, notwithstanding the fact that the government has had a had a very bad summer and and the, the prelude to these parliamentary sitting weeks has, has been terrible. There's no other word for it. Can I just throw one more thing in that I picked up watching the press club before the text bombs? Morrison was using this interesting formulation. It was very much a language of we, we're moving forward, we've done a great job. And I reckon to that kicking point, people felt really bad over summer that they were missing things. And so I think he's trying to make... um, the way we feel about where we're up to a proxy for the way the government is. And if he can get through the next few months and we feel better about where we're going, then we voting for us is voting for him. And I think that's where he's trying to get to, that we've gone through a tough couple of years, we're moving on to the other side and we're going to do this together. It's, I think it's brazen, but I think it's potentially effective as well. Yeah. Um, before we go back to the slides, Catherine, I did want to come back to 
your question at the press club before, uh, I'm not sure if it was before or after the text bombs were dropped. Immediately after his <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, it struck me as, you know, one of the key policy issues that really went wrong uh, for the government over summer and it's not like you can just import a bunch of nurses like you can a truckload of um, of rat tests and, and masks and things. Um, were you satisfied with the response that you got from the Prime Minister and how much of a problem do you think the unfolding crisis in aged care, we've seen him just, um, you know, call in the military after ruling that out, so clearly they are worried about it. Yes, yeah, they are worried about it. Uh, look, was I satisfied with the answer? No. Um, and I think this is a very live and pressing issue. The thing about the pandemic and aged care is that, that the pandemic hasn't sort of caused the problems in aged care. The problems were pre-existing. What the pandemic has done is, is accelerate the problems in a really dramatic way. So, look, obviously it's it's complicated, it's difficult. If, if booster crews come through aged care facilities and residents don't want their boosters, then uh, Scott Morrison is quite correct to say, well, <laughs> what do we do? I mean, you know, do we, do we force people to have them? Obviously we can't do that. But the thing is we've had a spotlight over the aged care sector for much of the last two years. We had a big response in last year's budget, a lot more money for the sector over a long period of time. What has been absent from the government's position at this point is a workforce strategy. And you cannot fix the problems in the caring economy without a workforce strategy. It's just not possible. So, Look, you know, we need to be clear. In terms of aged care, the Commonwealth funds and regulates the aged care sector. What is happening in, in residential aged care is the Commonwealth's problem. <laughs> it's not some rando passerby's problem. It's the Commonwealth's problem. We've had you know, disproportionate uh, deaths in the first wave of COVID in nursing homes because they were so ill-prepared. Now, in the Omicron summer, we've had another wave of cases and we've got this exacerbated by workforces not being, there's not enough people basically to care for people properly. Then people are in a situation in residential aged care where they're basically having to stay in their rooms for infection control purposes because there aren't sufficient people present with them to be able to manage their circumstances better. So I think intriguingly at the press club, the Prime Minister did point to the government working on a workforce strategy in aged care. He did mention that in passing. Um, and we really do need to see that because that, I mean, it's not the key to all mythologies. There's, there's lots of different problems. But without a proper workforce strategy, and that means, you know, making caring a career that people want to consider, it's what you pay people, it's how you train them, it's their quality of work. Without that, we're not going to get a fix in a sector that we will all have some dealings with as we move through life. And mm. demographically, we know, of course, the population's ageing. This is a real, this isn't a like 10 years away problem. This is an hour problem. Yeah. Pandemic has held a massive lantern over that. And yes, it was disappointing <laughs> in that session to sort of, you know, have the text bombs bomb in um, when there's sort of real and pressing issues that I think probably more voters care about. 
But, I mean, that's the nature of politics, isn't it? It is. And just reflecting on that issue of aged care that's been a huge problem over time and and um, identified by the Royal Commission, as you said, in that workforce section of what needs to change, part of that what we've been hearing about this week is that those two kind of $400 or up to $400 payments as a bonus are, are just not enough for a sector that is chronically underpaid, but the government hasn't even made a submission yet to that case that the nurses union and others have brought um, to increase the pay for aged care workers. So yeah, a bit of a, a drop in the bucket there, but I'm sure they're hoping it's enough to... Though, Ebony, I thought Albo's, Albo's intervention on the aged care issue was interesting this week, and I thought it was quite a nice framing. We used to call these nursing homes because there were nurses. Yeah. They've become aged care facilities, which is almost a corporate formulation that reflects the, the work that really John Howard did back when he was in power to take something that was effectively part of the public system into a marketplace, and we're kind of now trying to reverse engineer a series of safeguards around what's effectively become a deregulated marketplace. But I thought in terms of having something that will really um, resonate and cut through the idea of nurses in every nursing home um, is, is, is a really good place to start. Yeah. So let's head back to our polling results here. Mm. And can I just say, people want to play at home. There's a lot more data on our website, essentialreport.com.au, and you can play around with all these figures and get the trend lines. Um, the one we're looking at here just sort of reinforces that everyone's feeling a little bit better than they did a couple of weeks ago because the federal government response in each state um, is up. And if you go to the next slide, in most states, it's up as well, except one particular, two particular yeah. states. One particular state on the other side of Australia, where Western kind Australia, of, let's yes, be specific people following North, at home. You know the the Stalin era endorsement of um, the 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 glorious leader um, is dropped to only sixty four percent. So there is a little bit of fatigue going in there. But if you look at South Australia, Queensland and New South Wales, there's been a bit of an uptick, although the story in Victoria not quite so positive for the incumbent either. Um, this slide on uptake oh, of vaccines and boosters. Only of the people who haven't yet received their third dose, that's a third who say it's too soon um, since they've had their second jab, a quarter who've booked but haven't been to get it yet. Um, about one in five who haven't got around to making an appointment and about one in 10 of that smaller section of the population who don't intend to get a booster and a little bit less for uh, everyone left over. Fully vaccinated definition. This one's not quite so difficult for me, um, <laughs> but this is, this is relevant because what is going to be the definition of vaccination both in and out and across borders, but We've got a growing sense, um, so obviously a majority of those numbers don't take a PhD. Um, three doses equals fully vaccinated in the minds of the majority now. Mm. Not in the minds of many of the people mm. honking around the streets of Canberra at the moment, yeah. Catherine. That's the point, Eb. Yeah, we need to pick that up quickly, I think, because we did see a very interesting uh, little microcosm in this vaccine or fully vaccinated definition debate yesterday. Uh, the, the Prime Minister announced that the international borders would reopen to tourists and travellers uh, in a couple of weeks. 
the definition allowing people to enter the country is uh, you are vaccinated is if you've had two jabs. The whole debate domestically, uh, which has been led by Daniel Andrews, you know, if we cut to the chase on the boosters, right, there just hasn't been the urgency about getting the boosters that there was in the initial vaccination program. Obviously, people are moving through in methodical fashion, but there's just not that urgency. And uh, the premiers are concerned about their health systems thinking about a winter coming at us which will have a renewed COVID season as well as a flu season because everybody is around and about rather than being locked down for months on end. So the premiers are saying to Morrison, we really need the definition to be three, three jabs, because then that will that will focus the mind of Australians on what they need to do. It's a call to action, right? We need three jabs, not two. But the Prime Minister was at pains uh, uh, yesterday when he announced the opening of the borders to say, no, 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 the definition for entering the country from, from international visitors, that'll be two jabs, not three. And even if we change the definition domestically, we're not going to change the definition for international travellers. And that, as you said a minute ago, Ed, loops in my mind <laughs> to the many people who are massing on the forecourt as as we speak on the webinar today, uh, this protest has sort of been sitting at Scott Morrison's doorstep for the last week and uh, the government is concerned about this leakage of votes on their right flank. There are a bunch of people outside who are literally the living embodiment of that rusting off that's happening down there at the moment. And I think at least part of the Prime Minister's considerations, as well as health advice, I'm not suggesting it's all politics at all, but obviously they, all of these deliberations are tested in terms of health advice, but certainly there are. there's a feeling in the National Cabinet that Morrison is dragging his heels a bit on the three being the definition because of the folks down on the forecourt. Mm. Yeah. Which is critical to where the, you know, the Clive Palmer ads end up sending voters at the end of the day, isn't it? Like exactly. we know what happened last time. Yeah, it all loops back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to take us through these last couple of... Yeah, you might need to squint, people, but, again, if you're playing at home, go to essentialreport.org.au. Um, so what we've started doing is a formulation on issues about whether an, an issue is going to make people more or less likely to vote for the government. Um, and as you can see here... Um, on most things, there's a net negative towards the government on key issues, but not overwhelmingly. So the majority are kind of in the middle there, made no difference to your voting intention. Where this gets interesting, and again, I'll defer to John, is when you look at both people that voted Liberal in 2019 who say this issue makes them less likely to vote Liberal and people that didn't vote Liberal in 2019 who say this issue makes them more likely to vote Liberal. So if you can hold that. So what we're interested in is Liberal voters in 2019, is there an issue that's going to push you away from the government? And non-government voters, is there an issue that's going to take you closer to government? I'm going to let John Remington take us through this. Do you want to make sense of what yeah, I just said? Um, and whilst, whilst I do talk all of these numbers, the, I think the key ones to focus on are the second one down, just to be clear, if you don't know who John Remington is, he's the numbers guy for the Guardian Essential Poll. In that list of the COVID-19 pandemic, overall, that's a net 13% loss in voters for the government. That's a big one. 
The other yeah. two are cl- the two down the bottom with the lowest vote, um, push towards the coalition. That's climate change and the cost of living. Mm-hmm. So if you did vote coalition of 2019, the ones that are going to mostly you're going to stick with where you voted. So we're looking at the differences are smaller, but these are where the ne- negative differences are. And again, that's cost of living. So that's going to drive about 4% of coalition voters away from them. Um, climate change is driving around 3% away or um, net away. And all the rest are coalition voters are pretty happy and would get would continue to vote. So those are the two big where we're seeing an actual shift. If you didn't vote for the coalition, to be honest, from these issues that we've looked at, there's nothing really which is driving you towards them at this point. So from even economic management, where they are traditionally strong, there's nothing where people are really giving a ringing endorsement of the work they've done over four years as a reason to vote for them next time. Yeah, right. Pete, this one um, is a good one about the way people use social media. Um, what prompted yeah. you to ask about this this fortnight? Oh, because it's my pet project, um, but also because um, there's been over the summer an, an inquiry into online safety that's been running. Um, I've put up a bit about this in my Guardian column this week, which says in the fantasy world where there, it was a summer of freedom. This would be a really big deal now. And Morrison's been trying to build this narrative around keeping kids and women safe online for some time. People may remember at the G20 before he got poleaxed by Macron, he was going to give this global landmark speech on um, online safety in Australia being a world leader. And so what he's been doing over the summer, it was set up as a series evidence from a whole bunch of victims and big photo ops. And I and, and my read was he was setting up his pitch for re-election post-COVID as keeping um, uh, safe from COVID, safe from China and safe online. Um, now, the interesting thing in these numbers is that there is two-thirds to 70% support for something being done here. The question I ask in my column is, is this the right thing to be done? Because the work we do with the Centre for Responsible Technology is to talk about systemic change. And this is very much just a bit like the old version of um, crime where you just increase the penalty on a particular crime rather than trying to understand why the crime is being committed and intervene to stop that. So people can read my column if they want. Um, but I think there is still a huge appetite to regulate big tech. I just question whether the way this government's doing it is the right way. Catherine, I did want to touch on, Pete talked there about the Prime Minister trying to make social media a safer space for kids and and women, but we've had um, a lot of talk in the last year about Parliament and whether or not it's a safe space for women. We know that for a lot of women it is not, and today uh, there was um, not an apology, I believe, but an acknowledgement of some of the harm caused there. Can you just tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, immediately before I came round to do this, I was in the chamber. I was in the House of Representatives uh, for the statement of acknowledgement. It, it was an apology, Eb. It, yeah, there was no doubt about that. Sorrow was expressed by all of the protagonists, uh, some with more grasp of the moment that they were in than others, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so that's a really significant thing that's happened in the parliament If you've not been following this, the quick version is the Jenkins Review, which looked into Parliament's toxic workplace culture last year, one of their key recommendations was 
that political leaders stand up in the parliament and acknowledge the harm that has been perpetrated in this workplace over a long period of time and accept responsibility for, uh, you know, not being an exemplar as an employer for allowing this sort of combat culture of politics to determine people's lived experience uh, in their workplaces. So uh, the presiding officers basically read uh, an agreed form of words on the part of everybody in the parliament about that. Then uh, the Prime Minister and uh, the opposition leader, uh, Adam Bant from the Greens, Zali Stegall uh, from the crossbench, Barnaby Joyce from the National Party all stood up one after the other and uh, made their rhetorical reparations for what has occurred in this workplace. The Prime Minister certainly said sorry. He addressed Brittany Higgins, who was one of the people sitting up in the visitors' gallery with a, with a small group of other uh, Liberal women staffers who have done everything within their power over the last 12 months to keep this issue on the agenda. But, again, the Prime Minister was talking about a problem built up over generations. Yes, of course, that's true, but really accepting responsibility for it is is not talking about it as a problem built up over generations. It's, It's a look in the mirror moment. You know, did I rise to the occasion when the occasion arrived? And Brittany Higgins was clearly overcome. Uh, at a certain point in the contributions, she became overwhelmed and, and left the chamber. So, you know, a huge day and moment for those women who have been incredibly brave uh, going against the grain in their own cultures. But, you know, words are one thing, actions are another, right? Absolutely. And yeah, for for a lot of us uh, who are just you know looking on from outside, you can't even imagine kind of what a tumultuous uh, year and a difficult year that has been. And you know, obviously, for so many women who are still there in the building, um, yeah, I think that would be quite um, quite a big moment. Um, and let's hope it's the start of many, many more reforms to come. Um, I'll go now to uh, our questions from the audience. Um, the first one is from Mel Smith. Um, she asks, uh, how does the panel think Scott Morrison will market himself leading up to the election and will we see a different image altogether? Catherine, I might come to you first, just reflecting, if we look at the press club address, as what he's trying to project, what would you say? <laughs> what would be his tagline? <laughs> and, um, no, the interesting thing about being an incumbent, uh, and this is what's different from the last election, in the last election Scott Morrison had been Prime Minister for, oh, I don't know, five and a half minutes. Um, he had the opportunity, I suppose, to construct this character of a Prime Minister that he projected very successfully to the electorate, you know, this sort of avuncular guy at the barbecue high achiever in a baseball cap basically was the product. Um, when you're an incumbent, you can't conjure up a character for yourself. Yeah, you are you are weighted by your record. Even for the disengaged voters who determine the outcome of elections in Australia, that everybody will have an impression of the Prime Minister now that has been built up over the last three years in government. So he doesn't have the same flexibility yet to sort of set a character and set a, set a tagline for himself in this election. He's also will be weighted by the character assessments that have come 
from, from Emmanuel Macron, Barnaby Joyce. So, I mean, I don't need to spell that out, right? So anyway, look, answering the question with reference to today's data, um, that data just again, underscores that the pandemic is not an automatic vote winner for the government. People's concern about cost of living, again, underscores where the Prime Minister's going. He basically wants uh, people to focus on the economy, on new job creation, on, on the government being a safe pair of hands. What did Pete say? We'll keep you safe from safe from the pandemic, safe safe from the safe from China, safe from, you know, safe on the economy. That's basically it, although the pandemic's on the real down low. So look, it's it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but all I'm saying is he has to be a prime minister in this campaign. He has to be a prime minister with a record. He he has to basically appeal to people's concern about change. Uh, and and by that I mean a change of government, right? Like Anthony Albanese, the flip side of this question is Anthony Albanese, you know, it's two words in terms of how he's trying to present himself. And those two words are safe change, right? That is that is entirely what the, the Labor leader is trying to do, what the Prime Minister is trying to do, particularly over the next few weeks and as we get into the campaign proper, is, is to basically deconstruct the safe change narrative that Labor's trying to put together and to appeal to the coalition's strengths, which is security, economy, you know, times are serious. Anything can happen, guys. You don't want to change horses in midstream or whatever variant of that that old campaign slogan we're going to get this time. That's where the prime minister is going to be. So it's not so much a character, which it absolutely was in 2019, but it's a set of propositions. It's a weighted set of propositions, basically, and that's where Morrison's going. Yeah, Pete, um, back to my quote at the beginning, I want to be clear, I wasn't accusing the Prime Minister of biting anyone, but more to the point, you know, if you've got the President of France and the Malcolm Turnbull, I think people can see there might be other things at play there um, in terms of calling the Prime Minister a liar, but when it comes out that a sitting member of your own Cabinet and your Deputy Prime Minister both have the same assessment, Mm. Is that now solidified as his reputation or is there still room for him to change that? I think Labor sees character and the connection between character and performance as really central to their proposition for safe change. If we can, if, if we have a Prime Minister that the majority of the population does not trust to have the character to deal with the big challenges and that's going to affect their life, that's a pretty compelling argument for change. I don't know if any of you watched Four Corners last night. I thought Sean Nichols did a pretty good job of running a version of a focus group um, of swinging voters. And for those of us that run a lot of focus groups, it, nothing in there surprised me. And the, the two things that really struck me was the whole building of that persona of the, the family man who believes in God and supports the sharks, for quite a few of those swing voters, that's locked in. And so even the attacks are coming from this sympathetic construct. And they haven't read Lech Blaine. They haven't read Sean Kelly. They haven't seen how the magician does his trick. So if you're just watching politics out of the corner of your eye, like lots of those people were in that report last night, you can see mistakes, but you're actually starting believe it or not, with a sympathetic character. Now, I think the other interesting thing is 
If you stand back, Morrison, the Bronte Sydney boys, Ruggabugger, who discovered the sharks when he knifed the um, other guy that was trying to get Cook, versus Albo, who grew up in social housing um, and campaigned for to save the lifelong rabbitos. It's almost like Morrison's appropriated Albo's real personality. Now, what strikes me is this is what Kevin Rudd did to John Howard. Back in 2007, when he was running Safe Change, he basically turned himself into a mini John Howard, but just a decade younger. And I remember the Labor strategist saying to me at the time, you know, I was working with the unions, the Rights at Work campaign, you'll remember, and their proposition was your job's to get the mob to the edge of the cliff, our job's to convince them it's not too big a fall once they go over the edge. That's the proposition of safe change. Now, I don't know if there's any greater wisdom than that, but I, I, I just think that we should not underestimate, and, and then everyone that will go into the chat with the initials MSM, it's true. What now is going to be critical is when Morrison pulls off his baseball cap, photo ops, eating a sausage, washing hair, whether the media allows that to get to the people that are watching politics out of the corner of their eye unfiltered, when he goes and announces money in Liberal seats, whether that gets a clean run or if it's questioned with the fact they're not moving on corruption. So I do think MSM will have a really important role in this campaign because Morrison is a master of MSM and if the MSM is allowing itself to be used, then it will create a much better opportunity for Morrison to be re-elected. Is that too harsh on MSM, Catherine? <laughs> I might just say to the people at home that Pete's talking about the mainstream media. But... Oh, everyone in this in this <laughs> forum knows what that means because that's all they tweet about. The next question that I've got is from Terence Hull, who says, will the influence of state and territory premiers and chief ministers, once the federal electioneering starts, um, be running hot? Will they be blamed for all the COVID stumbles or will they appear as heroes? Where do you think that will land, Catherine? Uh, events, dear fellow, events, <laughs> twirling her moustache. Yeah, look, I, I don't know where that sort of... It, and will be at the time we're in the campaign, which is the sort of relevant marker of that. Uh, obviously, the, um, the the state and territory leaders have been much more present for Australians over the last couple of years than, than Scott Morrison has been. They're, people are much more likely to have a view about their premier or chief minister than they will have had any you know, <laughs> at any point in my reporting lifetime prior to the pandemic, so obviously uh, how the state's travelling is is relevant to how the the federal election ultimately ends. They're they're all connected in a way. Look, as a general proposition, the state leaders have uh, had more approval from voters throughout the pandemic than Morrison, even at when Morrison was on quite high approval levels. It's always been yeah that the states end daylight uh, because I think people uh, watching how the pandemic played out and who held the power and who understood who was making the decisions, you know, understood the states in, in the Federation were the people with the power. So, look, all the states are off their highs. Even, as we said this week, even Mark McGowan is, you know, is only gets a 66%. I love the Mark <laughs> McGowan rating. Dear God, what next? In terms of the political contest, in terms of the election, it is important for Morrison 
um, how the Paratay government is is going in in New South Wales. I think there's there is a concern at the moment, obviously that among the feds and in the state government that that's that's a bit of a vicious cycle. That's not very helpful to the coalition's re-election chances. But look, it, it sort of it just depends what's ahead. Uh, you know, are we off the Omicron peak? Uh, is there another variant around the corner? Uh, all of these things we don't yet know. Um, so it's it's hard. I can uh, I can do a watercolor for you, but I can't <laughs> give you the definitive answer. I did just want to ask actually um, both of you about there's been a lot of talk this week about um, clearing the decks and clearing off the barnacles and um, the Australia Institute did some polling last week um, in the electorates of North Sydney and Wentworth that showed um, that there was huge support for restoring ABC funding and um, reversing cuts to the ABC long-term funding arrangements and how important voters in those electorates um, think the issue uh, the ABC is to Australian democracy and the triennial funding agreement was up. We've seen an announcement on that this week where they didn't continue the indexation freeze. Um, we've got the religious discrimination bill on the books. ICAC seems to be off the agenda before the election, although the Prime Minister wasn't ruling it out. Just can you explain for people, Catherine, and then I'll come to you, Pete, that phrase clearing off the barnacles, like what's happening at the moment in Parliament? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, it's sort of like you've sort of got to think about uh, pre-election periods as, you know, a bunch of aeronautical engineers sitting there thinking about aerodynamics. It's about how to to make the plane fly at its optimal level, I guess, optimal efficiency. So anything that's dragging, anything that's applying gravity in the wrong places gets lopped off. Um, That's the sort of concept that we're dealing with. So what the Prime Minister is trying to do in these remaining sitting weeks uh, is sort of grind through business uh, that is either helpful for the coalition's re-election chances or dispatch business that is unhelpful for the coalition's re-election chances. It's no more deep or meaningful than that. So, yes, as Eb says, the the government sort of neutralised the ABC funding issue, which is a bit of an issue in some of these contests in metropolitan areas between Liberals and the Teal independents. Uh, I think religious discrimination also plays into those contests. The Prime Minister's kind of wobbling along this line at the moment with religious discrimination uh, where he's sort of trying to appeal to enough of uh, voters, you know, who, who peel off on cultural issues, basically. So he's trying to say in those metro contests we're going to look after gay kids for conservatives who who think this religious discrimination bill should be an affirmative religious freedom bill as opposed to an anti-discrimination proposition you know he's he's sort of trying not to over egg the this sort of uh, progressive element of this reform he's been emphasizing in this press conference yesterday he said what the religious discrimination bill would do is make sure that a Sikh family trying to get a rental property would not be discriminated against. So, again, the Prime Minister is always talking to you know, cohorts of voters. You can see with that issue that religious discrimination, if they hit it right, is very good for them in parts parts of Western Sydney and parts mm. of the country where there are, there are large migrant populations. Yeah, you look at the mar- marriage equality map yeah. and the, 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 the electorates have voted no, a number of Labor out of suburban elections. Out of suburban so, electorates, exactly. With, you know, with a lot of voters who are 
devout who have yeah. religious convictions. So, again, the Prime Minister's wobbling along the path. Just if you're watching today, and we should be clear, obviously, when we're talking, if you're listening to us later, that we're talking today on Tuesday, the, the coalition party room has met this morning and hasn't yet endorsed the religious discrimination bill because there wasn't enough time. I think they're coming back for another session on that. So that's in the barnacle kind of uh, proposition. Then there's the integrity committee, as Eb says, the government's concerned about that uh, or their lack of action on corruption and, and integrity issues being weaponised against them in some of these inner city or heartland contests. So the Prime Minister, even though he's had three years to bring this proposition into the parliament, is now trying to say to us, well, of course we're not going to go to the election without having considered this. It's just entirely unclear when this bill may actually lob. So, yeah. Can I just also say about barnacles that the risk is that if you allow them to remain on, they become part of a broader story. So if, if, if the attack on Morrison is character and that he lies, then um, not delivering on election promises has extra potency because it's not just, it, it becomes fact-based. And if you think about what the Liberals did to Labor last time, they took all these measures that were designed at um, constraining um, tax concessions for wealthy people and turned it into higher taxes until it all came together in Labor will tax you to death. So the the risk, I think, on the coalition side is all this unfinished business excites different populations but brings them into a unified narrative that the guy can't be trusted with Australia's future. So, you know, the ABC funding, I think, is a really conscious effort just to take some heat out of that piece. Um, Net yeah, because- Zero is a piece of that, that pie as well. I was just going to say though, isn't it? Yeah. The, the ABC funding, I mean, Catherine, I think you've um, hit the nail on the head there with uh, who the religious discrimination bill is kind of aimed at, but the ABC is a totally different kind of micro constituency as is uh, as are integrity issues, although they're much more popular um, in a widespread manner, but that integrity, public broadcasting, climate change, those are all issues being focused um, on by the independent candidates who are running in some of those safer Liberal seats. Um, Pete, how good of a job is the Prime Minister doing at threading that needle and micro-broadcasting to those different audiences, Mm. do you think? He risks the same problem that got Bill Shorten last election, which is you can no longer talk to discrete markets and not have eavesdroppers. So yes, you can very tightly micro-target on social platforms until you regulate them properly. But apart from that, um, you can't. So the one thing, I don't know if any of the community independents are going to win seats, but I do know that they've had a material impact on taking the heat, pardon the pun, out of the government's attacks on Labor for having a more nuanced policy. So there are some political contests where the actual end result isn't the only thing that happens. And I think that anyone on this call that's involved in community independence, you know, more power to your pen because that is actually acting as a handbrake on the worst instincts of this government. 
Um, and I would just say that uh, if you're interested in that ABC polling, that's available on the Australia Institute website and the Australia Institute's always uh, has also done a huge amount of research on what a strong corruption watchdog would, with real teeth would look like in terms of being properly resourced, independent, have broad jurisdiction, the ability to hold public hearings, um, many of those features in private members' bill like the one put forward by Helen Haynes. But you can find all that detail on australianinstitute.org.au. Um, and, Catherine, I'll just come back to you. We're kind of, uh, just before we wrap up, kicking uh, off Parliament again for the year. It's actually not that many sitting weeks until the budget and then until the election. Um, it's going to be a busy, a busy few months. Oh, yeah. We're already very much in the mode of, of the election. I mean, you know, we can, we can say the campaign hasn't been called, but we're well and truly campaigning. Everybody is campaigning. As you say, there's only a fraction, only a handful of sitting weeks. I think the senators have an extraordinarily low number of sitting days, I think five or something like that, because they've got estimates as well. So, look, yeah, that, the whole parliament knows it's on the clock right now uh, in terms of settling these issues before uh, the Prime Minister visits the Governor-General and we are off uh, after the budget on current indications. So, yeah, there's definitely, look, it's, it's, it's going to be a hell of a year. That was our webinar show called Polled Position and uh, the webinar is put together, as I said, by the Australia Institute. There's also a video of it so you can see all the slides that we refer to uh, in the course of the conversation and I'll link uh, that video to the podcast webpage on The Guardian. I'll also put up a link where you can register, where you can come along and join the discussions if you want to watch it live and if you want to participate in the conversation. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to Karishma Luthria, who edited the show for me this week. And we'll be back in your feeds as normal on Saturday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.